Good morning, guys. What Kyle was just saying about uh, what we did, this is, this is kind of a real men's club, we call it part two, what a real man does and how he uh, relates to the world that he's in. And we did spend some time uh, last year talking about the things in our world and society that really are challenging in us and hindering us experiencing life as uh, we were designed to experience and lead out as men. And as he said, that, that absent or abusive father wound is one that haunts a lot of guys. And we dealt with that in depth. And we would just encourage you, you can get all that stuff free on our website. You can just go to it, watermarkcommunity.org, as you might know. And uh, you can just download that stuff for free. Or if you'd like your own copy, um, you can just go to our, our website as well and just click on that media link and they'll tell you how to get that. All our resources, we always uh, sell exactly for the price it costs us to produce them. And we don't even want that to be an issue. If you want stuff that's there and uh, don't have the means to make that available to yourself, you tell us, and uh, we'd be happy to get that into your hands. So there's that and lots of other stuff, because that really is the basis for uh, where we're launching off starting today. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look in these next four weeks at, at really, and really take a look the next two weeks and give you an opportunity to two after that. Uh, this week we're going to look at a real man and work, and what a perspective that a guy that's overcome, you know, kind of society's shove and push and uh, the things that hinder us from living life as we should as men, what it looks like when that kind of guy overcomes an abusive or absent daddy and how that can drive us and motivate us or other things that he mentioned, what a guy who's on top of some of that should look like in relationship to work. And uh, if you would humor me by letting us pray for us, I'll do that and then we'll dive in and get us on our way on time. All right. Well, Father, we are grateful that uh, we can gather like this and um, take a look at what you have to say about how we should view work, this thing that is uh, unavoidable in all of our lives. Just teach us, instruct us about our view of it, what it should be, and our response to it should be, and how we handle the frustrations of it. And uh, we just pray that we would encourage each other today, wherever we're at in our process, that we would uh, be real men. In other words, that we would really live uh, with all the challenges that this world faces us with in the way that you intended us to, so that we might experience the life that you have called us out of darkness into for our good and your glory. We pray that that would happen. I thank you for these guys. That, Lord, you're working their life in such a way that they would at least come and, and just consider these things together with us this morning. So we're grateful for them and we're grateful for you and the opportunity we have to learn from you now. Amen. Well, let's dive through. I've put as much down there for you as I can. And, uh, you know, we'll post these on the website. If for some reason you don't have a pen with you this morning... Uh, we'll put these on the web a little bit later. You can go and you can fill in your little blanks or just print it off if you want right then. But, but here we go. Let's just start by acknowledging this. Work is not a curse. Now, I know a lot of us think that it is. But it's what we do because of who we are. Work is something that was originally there in God's design. And you see some of the verses that I've got right down there for you. I'll put them up behind me. In Genesis chapter 1, right from the very beginning, it says... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, he blessed them, and he said, listen, this is what I want you to do, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, as we said a little bit earlier, subdue it. And you basically manage this world in the same way that I manage all of the universe. And part of being made in the image of God is that we are... Giving, uh, we're stewards of responsibility. We are sovereign over something. And we have a responsibility for something. 
if you happen to be an individual that works out there right now as a rancher, as a farmer, and not very many guys in this room are, there's a few landscape architects that I know that are in here, uh, different folks that work on the land and over it and things like that. That's the original profession. We all talk about what the oldest profession is, but that's not true. The oldest profession are guys that work the land and had a responsibility and a stewardship over it. Now, as our land has evolved, if you will, and become, quote-unquote, civilized, there's different jobs and responsibilities that we've also embraced. But we need to remember, work is not a curse. It's not something we do because we are cursed. In fact, what's interesting, if you go back and look at the original languages, uh, Hebrew, the word avoda is the Hebrew root word, which forms the word work in Hebrew and also the word worship. In other words, how we live our life in relationship to our responsibility, our vocation, if you will, can be seen as a part of who we are made in the image of God. And God wants us to live and walk in his image. And as we do that, that is a form of worship. And I'm talking worship with a capital W, not the small worship that many of us think of involves a Sunday morning time or activity. But worship, uh, work is not a curse. It's part of who we are and what we do. You can see there in Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, the reason that's important is because if you know your Bible at all, it's not until Genesis 3 that there is this issue that enters into the world called rebellion, where men said, you know what, I'm going to live and work the way that I want to live and work, disregarding the way that God told me I should live and work in relationship with him. And so you'll see that we have been given responsibility to work Long before sin came into the world. This is not a sentence. This is a part of who we are. And the question is how we are going to respond to this opportunity or this responsibility determines whether they're real men or not. The men that we were created to be or not. In fact, let me show you one other thing. Not only is work not a curse, but there are certain scriptures that tell you that if you don't work like you should, you are in fact a cursed man. Uh, look what it says right there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, Paul writes, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Now, this is, this is important, okay? Individuals that are not willing to work, and what we have developed in America is a very entitlement society where it's others' responsibility to make sure that you eat that you're given shelter and you're given clothing, whether you can work or not. And that's a problem. And that creates all kinds of problems in society, many of which are thick in our culture. Now, there are certain people because of uh, disease or disability or other issues that are not able to work. And it is the job of a compassionate, loving, just, kind God informed people to provide food, shelter, and clothing for those individuals. But just because uh, somebody says they don't want to work doesn't mean that we should make sure that they have food, clothing, and shelter. In fact, the Scripture said, let their stomach work for them. Let their hunger inform their sluggard's way of life and drive them to a place where they are disciplined, if you will, by their circumstance if they won't be informed by wisdom. So work and a curse. Work is a privilege, a responsibility, and an opportunity. But what we do with that is what takes us away from, if you will, our core, and maybe sometimes pushes us to a place of crisis. Um, 
Let me just say this as we start. Work, because it is uh, related to worship in the, in the uh, original uh, languages, uh, it, it tells us a lot about who we are. The way we work says a lot about really who we worship. Look at these next little set of blanks down here. How we lead and serve at work says a lot about who leads us and who ultimately it is that we serve. And what I mean by that is really spelled out in that next little thing right there. I'm going to move quickly. I'm trying to give you this morning a theology, if you will, of work. An informed study of what God says about work. And we're going to look at this morning, you know, how we're doing in light of this. Because some of us were probably more comfortable with that previous meeting, though it was obviously, uh, you know, hyperbole and over-the-top exaggeration in terms of the way we view work. And some of us are trying to find our meaning through work than the, the way that God wants us to find work. But how we lead at work or how we work at work and serve others at work says a ton about who we say that God is and what his word has to do in our life. Um, work, here's an excellent point, is worthy of our very best. There are too many times that there are individuals that are, because they think they're spiritually minded, that they treat their particular vocation or their particular job as less important than maybe what they think is going on in their areas of spiritual leadership and influence, sometimes even spiritual service. And they are people that, it's been well said, are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. May it never be. You can be doggone sure, you know, one guy said, that there were no crooked chairs, if you will, coming out of that carpenter shop in Nazareth. I see my buddy Brad Elliman over there is a builder. Uh, and, and, and because of Brad's relationship with the Lord, he ought to build the best houses in town because the way that he goes about his work should reflect his understanding of his stewardship of giftedness and opportunity to serve other people as he is employed by them to put them in a structure that is what he said it was going to be. I see my friend Fred out there who's a doctor. The way Fred cares for people should not just be to run them through like cattle so he can, you know, fight the insurance companies to get 10 bucks from them. But Fred ought to care for those folks and treat them as individuals if he's responding rightly to who God says that he is. Work is the way we serve people at work. The way we lead people and employ people at work says a lot about ultimately how we view people and whether or not how we view people is informed by how God views people. Um, too many times, and you can see what it says right there in Colossians 3, uh, 23 and 24, work hard and cheerfully at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people, because you are. Remember, he would say, that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and the master you are serving is Christ. So his point right there is, listen, don't be somebody that is only going to work hard when you're being watched, as if you work only for those that are supervising you and paying you. That's not who you're working for. Humanly speaking, it is. But ultimately, your master is somebody who's always with you, always aware of what's going on, and will always reward you when you live with the dignity and honor and integrity that a person who knows and loves God lives with. And the way you work, it's been well said that character is who you are when no one is looking. The way you work, the way you fill out uh, your expense reports when you know they're not going to be audited says a lot about who you think leads you and who it is you think you serve. Watch this. Men who are led by Christ ought to lead others as He leads us. 
you know, there is a, a mindset that is out there uh, that you take um, labor plus materials plus capital, and, and that's what gives you produce. And there's a lot of folks that will tell you that when you look at your company, that your greatest resource is what? People. But what I would tell you is that God doesn't see people as resources. God sees people as people. And if you're an individual who is given stewardship over other folks, and all you see them as is some factor in an equation, some resource like finances or fuel to be depreciated and dumped when you have an overflow of it, and you just factor folks into that as part of your equation to be productive and profitable, then you really ought to question what's informing your leadership. Because God doesn't see people as resources. God sees people as what? People that He loves and cares for. People that He has a, a desire to, um, to grow. People that He has a desire to unleash to the maximum of their potential. To participate in a way that is uh, significant in allowing them to contribute and develop meaning. When you think over how you're leading your organizations, how you might lead your family, but specifically when you look at work, when you would ask your employees, how do they enjoy where they are working? Do they see themselves at a place where they can grow and develop? Do they see themselves as an individual that is contributing in a significant way to the team? Do they see themselves as people who are uh, empowered to make decisions and make a difference? Or you just tell them to shut up and do their job? And you'll make the decisions. And you'll pay them the minimal amount you have to so that you can advance your purposes. You see, what you want to do is look at the way that God works with humanity. He doesn't tell us just to find some little task that He's going to cram into our corner and make us do it. What God wants us to do is develop us to the maximum of our potential. Every single one of us has a unique design that God wants to unlock in relationship with Him and allow us to significantly contribute to significant things, to eternal things. One of the things that we're trying to do right here, okay, uh, at Watermark, is to make sure that this is the best working environment that anybody has ever had. And we've got some major challenges towards that end. We'll talk about what some of those challenges are in a little bit, and not the least of which are related to the fact that sometimes the folks that are leading us here don't lead like they love and serve Christ. Meaning me. At times I can get the things... You know, where I'm just responding viscerally as opposed to in a spiritually informed way. And I've got to go back at that moment and say, hey, I need to ask your forgiveness for the way I just handled that. But you want to go through and ask your employees, as we do here, hey, how are you doing? Do you feel like you're heard here? Are you communicated to here? Are you a significant part of the overall picture here? Do you feel like you're part of the team here? Are you being developed here? And we've got a list of seven or eight things that we're in constant dialogue with, those that are employed and are a part of what happens here, saying, would you help us work with you in a way that would make you feel like you love where you work? Because that's the way God designs it, especially when we work underneath people that are leading the way that he leads us. All right? Look, uh, look at what it says right there in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, you slave owners, you must be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master who is in heaven. And so what God's saying right there is, look, just because you're in a position of authority right here, you need to realize you're not the top of the food chain. 
And I don't care if you have your own business. I don't care what you are right here. You're still accountable to somebody who's going to supervise or evaluate you in the way that you lead other people. You've got a master who's going to uh, have conversations with you about those that you had stewardship over right here. Is your workplace, underneath your leadership, is there a community of trust, of, of freedom, of empowerment, of opportunity, of integration, of oneness and community? If not, it really ought to make you question whether you're leading the way that the one that you, if you know Jesus Christ, if you know God and have a relationship with Him, wants you to lead. And if not, I will tell you, whether you know Christ in a salvific way or not, and have come to grips with your own sin and hardness of heart, here's the reality. People ask me this all the time. Todd, how, many, how come I see so many folks who, who, who are not quote-unquote Christians, who have a better marriage than folks who profess to, to love Christ? And I said, that's an easy question to answer. I answer it this way. Because sometimes there are people who live with wisdom principles and are informed by what God says should uh, speak into our relationships, our marriages, and the way that we uh, interact with one another, they do a better job of applying those wisdom principles than folks who maybe have acknowledged that they've got a hard heart and a sin heart and have asked Jesus Christ to deal with that, but who don't then on a continual basis avail themselves to God lovingly speaking into their lives. Uh, I had a, um, I have a good friend who was uh, one of the senior leaders at Southwest Airlines. This particular good friend was also elder, an elder at one of our better known churches in the Southwest. And he told me, he said, I, he goes, it is an embarrassment to me that my company that is led by a very secular man is more Christian in its principles and more loving in its practices with its employees than the church that I am an elder at that is renowned for its biblical focus. It shouldn't surprise you that Southwest Airlines is consistently voted as one of the best places in our country to work. Because the elements that God says that we ought to have in our relationships with one another are high values in that company that are consistently monitored and consistently evaluated and they're corrected to be brought back on that course with that. Whereas too many times places that say they love God and honor Him don't implement those things into their execution. So why are some non-quote-unquote Christian marriages better than quote-unquote Christian marriages? Because sometimes non-believers do a better job of living with the practical wisdom that God says will bring the fruit of success than sometimes even folks who have acknowledged the corruption of their heart and their need for a Savior. But they don't embrace what their Savior has told them. Um, I'll give you an example from my life, this, and, and I'll tell you that by the grace of God, there hasn't been very many, and, and, and this is a great place to work right here, because we work hard at it. Uh, we, in fact, Southwest Airlines, about three years ago, did a huge consortium for churches all over the country, where there were literally hundreds, if not thousands, of folks from churches that went over in Southwest Airlines, put them on a four-day training time, explaining how they can create a work environment that will bless their people. Did you hear that? Southwest Airlines worked with a group called the Leadership Network to train churches how to create environments that would bless their people. And we were encouraged that when we sent some folks to go to that for a couple of days, they came back and they said every time we got into a small group and folks started to go, this is revolutionary, the things that we're doing over there. And they said, let's talk about how we can flesh that out. Every time in my group, I had a chance to go back and tell them how we were doing these things and how they fleshed out in the context of a local church. And they came back and were constantly working to improve and to evaluate. But by the grace of God, because 
Southwest Airlines doesn't have the keys to these things. God's word and scripture does, and God's modeled it for us. We came away from there really feeling like we had a lot to offer and encourage others with. But there are times, like a couple of weeks ago when uh, Hurricane Katrina hit, and we were trying to mobilize uh, our, our team here to serve in every way that we can, and we've empowered people to make some decisions and, do, and, and uh, to jump on task and get going and not have everything to be too centralized. That's some folks with the right spirit, with the right heart, were trying to do some things that, frankly, weren't informed by experience or maybe even thought through in terms of how it would impact others, but they were doing it out of a good heart. They were the right mistakes to make. Specifically, it was tied to how everybody everywhere said, hey, listen, these people need clothing. These people need you know, basic elements. And so word got out that you know, we need to bring things certain places. You guys saw down at Reunion in the news how they, it, was, it was like a huge flea market. Everybody was dropping all kinds of stuff there to where they literally put police up and said, you are not allowed to bring anything down here and dump it off anymore. Salvation Army shut down its distribution centers and said, we don't need any more clothing. We need money and cash to start to feed these people and get them, you know, in, in a safe housing and lodging. Well, we had some folks here that uh, meant well, but just actually had missed some communication we had given to them. And the next thing you know, word got out around this area that this was now going to be a place that was going to be a distribution center. And so folks were just showing up, just dropping stuff off here, okay? And I had had conversations with three or four different folks on staff about why we're not taking any clothing, you know, because we were down at Reunion. We were working with the Red Cross Salvation Army, so we don't need clothing. But somebody else was thinking on their own, and, and they just said, you know what, we're going to do this, and we're going to get clothing, and we're going to serve these people out of a good heart. Well, anyway, we had caught several of these folks and had good communication with them, but one of them we didn't, and next thing you know, a lot of our staff is here hauling huge piles of clothing, most of which, you know, you wouldn't wear if it was given to you. That's why people were glad to give it. But uh, up and down the elevators, storing it on some of our floors that weren't finished. And so I got the phone call, Todd, this is what's happening. Now, now clothing's being dropped off here. What should we do? And I realized at that moment that, you know, I hadn't had a chance to share with everybody some of what was going on. And so I sent out an email. But the email uh, started this way, in all caps, N-O-B-O-D-Y. Okay, there it is. Look at that beauty. I didn't know I actually gave that to you guys, but there it is. Look at, watch this. This is genius. How about this for leadership? <laughs> Nobody has the authority to approve anything in our campus that is outside our normal operation without capital. Isn't that beautiful? Consent from the B team, which is what we call uh, some of the folks that help oversee our thing. And the B team will consult with the operations team and elders as necessary. The current drop-off crisis at our office is a perfect illustration as to why. Decisions are always best when made in tandem, not in isolation by any one department or staff member, which is to say like the idiot that made this decision without talking to me, the bright and informed one who works well in conjunction with other people. And then very sweetly, thank you, your loving Pastor Todd. Now, I can tell you that that email does stand out over the emails that I sent over the years, and I, I, I sent it quickly just to avoid... Some of the miscommunication, but I'll tell you something else I did. I sent that inappropriately. And, uh, and, and there's some folks here that love me and love our culture. And they came to me and said, hey, Todd, that's not the way I think we want to lead here. And you know that. That hurts our culture. I said, you're fired. Next. Come on in here. <laughs> and, uh, and after I lost three staff members, uh, the fourth one survived. And, and no, but I, I, you know, we got everybody together. And I had to ask their forgiveness and just say, look, here's why I did this. My heart was not um, to be as demeaning as it was. 
And I can tell you all day long, I was just trying to make sure that we didn't create more work for ourselves. But that still does not excuse the tone of that email and the lack of thought that went into it before I hit send. No matter how quickly I needed to get the word out, there was a better way to work it. And even worse, it made it look like we're neutering you when all we've asked you to do is own things, make a difference, contribute, and lead. And not be in some bottleneck organization where you've got to make sure that somebody up here thinks that you're trying to do the right thing where in a moment of decision you're motivated to serve. Will you forgive me? And can we go back to work in the way that we did? Now, why do we lead that way? Because that's the way God wants us to lead. Now, we lead still in relationship with Him, informed by Him, not in isolation, but in community. But when people make decisions out of a good heart, how are they treated? Look at this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Um, You know, what I have to ask myself on a regular basis is if um, someone led me the way I'm leading them, or if somebody served me or worked for me the way I'm working for them, would I be blessed or bothered? And, and the golden rule, you know, that Jesus has given us to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Ask yourself this. Okay, in my leadership at work, am I treating my folks that are underneath me as resources that are expendable and I'll just move them out and bring another resource in if it doesn't go well? Or am I loving them as an individual person, caring for them, developing them, trying to unleash them, making them feel a part of this? That's the way I want to be led. That's the way God leads me. And you think about the difference and gap in aptitude and an intellect between God and me. And he says, Todd, I want to develop you to the height of your potential so that you can participate with me in something that is going to have eternal profit. I want you to be a part of the team, not just take orders, snap your heels, and just say, shut up and go do it. And that's the way I want to be led. And by the grace of God, I am led by him. And that's the way he wants me to lead others. I want folks who work hard even when I'm not looking. Do I work hard when no one's looking at me and I'm not being audited or evaluated or in a public setting? See, when you work that way, you're worshiping. And you're saying who leads you and who it is ultimately that you serve. We want this mindset. Work is not something we go to. Work, in a nutshell, based on all I just said, it is someplace where we show who we are. And the reason I didn't say the place is because it's just one of the aspects of our life. There's many other areas in our life. But let me say, this is a significant mindset for you. Work is not some place you're going to go to here in a few minutes. Work is just another one of the many places that you're going to show who you really are in the way you interact with people, serve people, care for people, lead people, and honor people with a hard day's effort. Who leads you? Who do you serve? Work is one of the places that that's on display. Look at this next one. Um, Work has, though, become toilsome because our world is out of whack. Now, this is just a fact. Work is not a curse, but work today is a little bit more work, if you will, because our world is out of whack. Now, God gave Adam a job in in Genesis chapter 2 before sin ever came into it. But because of sin, things have gotten more difficult. Here's the passage in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Take a look at it with me. Then, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about uh, which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. 
In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's the reality. Work has been made more difficult because of sin. It's more tiring. Relationships are now flawed. They are not mutually submissive and other-centered. You're going to work with manipulative people uh, who exploit you, not folks who are going to be naturally um, concerned for your best interests. And because of that, it takes more toil in the context of work. Because of that, there are conflicts that arise up. Because of that, there is insecurity. Because of that, there's a lack of teamwork, a lack of synergy. There's a competitiveness and a Darwinistic mindset where I'm going to survive at the expense of you as opposed to being other-centered, mindful of other people and, and doing everything we can to make sure that, um, that they are cared for, loved, and advancing with me as a team. Never at their expense, but treating others as I myself want to be treated. See, this world is flawed now. And because of that, it's become much more toilsome. So let me spell that out for you. We toil because of who we are and because of who we work with. That's just expounding out what it means that now because sin has entered into the world, at times we lead out of our flesh. At times we lead out of our anger. At times we lead out of our pride. At times we lead out of our insecurity. And an insecure, prideful, angry leader is going to be a difficult individual to work with and work for. And you're going to have employees that are not going to be unleashed underneath that. Likewise, if you're working for somebody, even if they are loving towards you, you are bent towards shortcuts, towards laziness, towards compromise. You're bent towards self-advancement and not the community that you're trying to partner with. And that makes it difficult to work with you. And even when you're loving other people, you're going to be working with people sometimes. They're going to be that way towards you. And so it becomes more toilsome. We toil also because of what we want work to be. Now, what do I mean by that? Work is going to always be a burden to you when you ask it to be something it was never designed to be. Work, if you will, is a worthless idol. Uh, less than 10% of Americans, according to a survey they did in a book called The Day America Told the Truth, less than 10% of Americans are satisfied in their work. But the truth is, is if you make work that which will ultimately satisfy you, you'll never be satisfied with work. Because work has never been intended to, uh, to be our God. What work provides for us was never intended to provide for us ultimate satisfaction. There are things that happen when we go to work that are very satisfying. There are fruits of our labor that bring us satisfaction to a certain point but not ultimately at the end of the day everything on this earth has an unsatisfactory nature to it because it is not what we were ultimately designed to live with and be satisfied the only thing that ultimately satisfies us is our relationship with god to work hard and to have success is a good thing but if all you work for is fame is being celebrated is material uh, reward you can have every single one of those things and be a very unsatisfied individual. I, I thought about last night, you know, we, we saw uh, the triplets go into the ring of honor and how those guys have 
not just won Super Bowls, but now have been recognized amongst their peers as the guys that really were at the center of, uh, of, of that team's success. But now they're in the Ring of Honor, now what? Now they wait to see if they're in the Hall of Fame. Once they're in the Hall of Fame, then what? And I, I hearken back to a, a great quote I read after uh, the Cowboys won one of their early Super Bowls uh, when Charlie Waters uh, was, was talking to Cliff Harris right after they won the Super Bowl in the locker room. And, uh, and they were talking to each other, and they kind of looked at each other and they go, now what? And a, and a reporter looked at them and said, what do you mean, now what? And they both said the same thing. Say, you know what? We fought our whole life to get here, and now that we're here, it's kind of disappointing. Because what's next? Disney World, by the way, has jumped all over this. Okay? You guys know where I'm going with this, right? Because Disney World has said, all right, here's where you go. When you've got to the pinnacle of your career, you've just been named MVP of the most testosterone-driven sport on the face of the planet. That isn't enough. But guess what? Lucky for you, you can go to Orlando. Okay? And so they say, Tom Brady, you just passed for 300-some-odd yards through three interceptions. You're a Super Bowl MVP. What are you going to do now? I don't know. It really isn't that much you know, satisfaction here. But I can go to Disney World. And they make a commercial out of it. How many of y'all spent $6,000, $10,000 on a Disney World vacation? A bunch of you. Great, wasn't it? There was a certain satisfying element to it, wasn't it? But at the end of the day, you kind of went, now what am I going to do? Okay, then I get folks walking into Disney World and say, hey, you just spent $10,000 staying at the Floridian. Now what are you going to do? I'm going to go to SeaWorld, you know? It'd be a great commercial for them. How about this? Work is more toilsome for some than for others. Why? Because some are toiling for the wrong reasons. That's the idea. There are some of you that have this idolatry of work, and so you are working it out because you know it, it can never satisfy. So you think the reason it's not satisfying is because you're not working hard enough. You don't have enough clinics. You don't have enough branches. You don't have enough franchises. You don't have enough employees. You don't have enough profit. And so you're going to stay there and burn that midnight oil and burn ulcers into your gut until you can get that because you think that next thing is going to make for you what you ultimately want. And so it's going to be more toilsome for you than for others. Uh, I guess it was, what, two weeks ago we sat up here with my friend Bob Rowling, who is the 50th wealthiest person in the world. And Bob sat up here and just very humbly talked about how there's a lot of sovereignty to getting him to that place. But as we interviewed him in our business lunch, and one of the things that Bob said, he said, let me just tell you something about money. Money will help you zero in the areas of character and uh, relationship quality in your life. And he said, you got tons of money. And he goes, i got lots of friends that have lots of money, but who have a horrible character and are not very happy people and have zero relationships and are not very happy people. But they keep on grinding, thinking that somehow more Industry, financial success will cover up that hole in their heart in a way that they were not designed to have it covered up that way. And a flawed character will never give you peace. Broken relationships will never give you peace. And some folks toil more than others because they keep working this thing called work, wondering why they haven't got peace yet when they're trying to make it something it was never designed to be. Um, some of us toil more than others because we have an unhealthy dependence on job association. You know, people who cannot get out of a job that they know they're not designed for because they love that job because it brings them a certain amount of respect 
or title or position that they thrive from. They like the fact that they're in a certain profession that gives them notoriety and acceptance. They love it when there's some place that somebody says, what do you do? And they get to say, I am a... And yet they're miserable in their job, but they can't leave it because they have an unhealthy dependence upon their association with that job. Some guys toil more than others because they have an unhealthy dependence on their compensation. What we call golden handcuffs. Hey, this job, I hate it, but I'm making so much money, I can't leave this job because I've got to continue to have this job to pay this mortgage to get these things that frankly don't give me the peace that I want. But I want those things because I think those things surely someday are going to kick in and give me what I want. And so I can't leave this job. And so I'm, I'm toiling more here than others, even though I know this isn't what I should do. I can't leave it because it's providing so much for me. Look at this little verse right here in 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 12. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snare many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things. They're lousy gods. You, man of God, live like you know Him. You pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, live a life that's marked by wisdom and not by where the world's continuing to offer you a carrot that will never satisfy. Um, a great little story about you know two guys were interviewing uh, uh, for a job, and, and the one guy... You know, they happened to be lawyers, and the partner at the firm said, hey, why do you want to be a lawyer? He said, oh, I want to be a lawyer because I have great respect for the law. And, and I knew I wanted to be a lawyer because I care about folks that are suffering from injustice. And I love the Constitution. I'd die for it. And I want to work for fairness and equality and, uh, and help people uh, prosper and survive. That's why I've always wanted to be a lawyer. And the second guy walks in and says, tell me about your story. Why do you want to be a lawyer? He said, I want to be a lawyer because of my hands. The guy said, because of your hands? He said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah. He goes, I looked at my hands one day and I realized that there wasn't any money in either one of them. And so I wanted to be a lawyer. Now, which one of those two do you think ultimately, you know, enjoyed what he did? First Timothy 6 is right. Okay. It certainly couldn't have been the second because no matter how much you fill your hands up with whatever your profession is. It's never going to give you what you want. Some guys are really toiling. They're wondering, what am I not doing right to get the rest that I want to get. Well, when you make work your worship, that which you worship or your idol, it's never going to happen. Unhealthy fear of what might happen if we leave our job on the backside. Uh, in other words, you know, I, I, I just I don't want to trust tomorrow. I'm not really sure if I really live and, and begin to be a person that trusts God and, and, and follows the design that he put in me. And I, and I, I release my job association. I don't worry first about compensation I'm not really sure I can trust that. Look what it says there in that next little section. Because some of us are toiling in the wrong place. And this ties itself to that. And here's just some things I wrote down there that are just little principles that I, I try and live by. When folks say, man, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. I tell people all the time. And by the way, I tell this to guys, you know, um, whatever they're looking to do. And there's a lot of guys who they get down, for instance, Dallas, Dallas Seminary, a place that I spent some time. And I look at these guys, and, and the heroes of that business school, if you will, 
are guys that have written books and that stand in large pulpits and that have churches that look a certain way. And the reality is there's some guys down there that love God that are never that God never intended and designed to be uh, primary leaders in a local community. That God never designed to be primary communicators uh, in, in, before large groups. And if they think that's what's going to make them successful in their service of Christ, they're going to be miserable. And so are the people, by the way, they're going to be led by them and taught by them. Because that's not the way they're wired. And I tell them, man, know who you are. Be who you are and like who you are. Some of you are designed to play different roles. And those roles are just as important as the roles that a Swindoll or, a, you know, or David Jeremiah play. You need to make sure you find out what your piece is, embrace it, and accept it. You know, and I ask them, what do you love? Um, you know, what are you good at? Do others affirm you in your sense of being good at it? And I just wrote down six, seven questions there that I always encourage guys to ask if they try and sort through. Um, you know, who am I? How am I designed? It, it, those who, who, um, who pursue prosperity, I'll say it this way, without regard for who they are, uh, what their attributes and aptitudes are, are never going to be people that experience the peace that God designed for them. And it's just a reality that, that you may never have a church where you're the quote-unquote senior leader. Uh, and, and, and that's okay. And you can be just as honored by God if you'll just do what He created you to do and quit trying to be something you're not. Same thing is true in every area of leadership and business. I tell guys all the time, and do not do what I do. Don't go into ministry unless you can't do anything else. What I mean by that is don't go into vocational ministry unless there's some stirring in your heart that whatever it is that you would do would, would always find you with some unholy discontent because you know that there's a special uh, call in your life to do this other thing. Because here's the reality. If you are led by Christ and serve Him, you're in ministry. And your job is just as significant as your pastor's job. You can be uh, as much of a steward and worshiper and spiritually minded person working at Walmart as you can at Watermark. And in fact, you know, I wrote this down as I was thinking about this the other day, and I said it to myself this way. Um, I said, we're not to be, we're not called to be in vocational ministry. We're called to be spiritual in our vocation. And when I want to let you guys know out there today, man, you love God. Don't ask yourself, God, well, you know, I, I need to, I need to get out of my job and, and start doing some vocational ministry. No, you don't. Just be spiritual in your vocation. You guys get to go to a mission field and love folks that walk into your office whether it's a patient or whether somebody's home you're building or somebody you're working for, somebody who's calling you on the other end of the phone or somebody you've got to call and be spiritually minded in the way you love and honor and serve those people in a way that will make them thirsty, in a way that will make them curious about why you are compassionate, why you are a man of character, why you're a man of consideration, why you are other-centered. Don't think that there's a call to be vocational in your job, that you need to be in ministry with your vocation but be more spiritual in whatever your vocation is. All right? Ask yourself those questions that are down there. If you knew you'd succeed at whatever you attempt to do, what would you do? Who do you ultimately work for? Are you working for your father to show him that you're a success? You're still trying to overcome that father wound? He said you'd never amount to anything. Is that why you're working so much? It's a bad reason to work. Are you working for your boss? That somehow he'll be, he's replaced your father and you need him to validate you? And so you're driven to, to work in an unreasonable way? Because what you really worship is the affirmation of a man. Are you working for your self-worth and validation? Wrong reasons to work. 
What skills have people told you again and again you possess more than most? What past jobs, responsibilities have brought you the greatest joy and satisfaction? What are your goals? Are they consistent or inconsistent with God's goals for you? And you guys can look at the rest that are down there. Ask yourself those questions. And don't make your work more toilsome because you're working for the wrong reasons or in the wrong place for the wrong reasons. All right. Well, let me make this comment quickly. It is right to leave your job. When you think about work, it's right to leave your job when? When where you are is keeping you from where you should be. In other words, there are certain jobs that are going to call you out of some places that God says you're never supposed to compromise as you worship Him at work when you're worshiping Him at work impedes your ability to worship Him as a follower in other areas, then you can be sure that you're not worshiping Him at work. Let me, let me just say it to you this way. Folks ask me sometimes, Todd, is there anything that God can't do? And I, you know, and I tell them, yes, there is. Okay? What God cannot do is violate His character. In other words, He will never be loving at the expense of justice. He will never be merciful or gracious at the expense of holiness and righteousness. God always has these two things in perfect balance because He is good and right. And if we're His people, okay, if something we're doing over here is keeping us from being something He's told us we should be over here, then we've got it out of whack and out of balance. And, and if our work is keeping us from where we should be, actively involved in our home, shepherding our kids, having presence with our family, directing our family, having energy for them, creativity in the way we love them and serve them, then whatever we think we're doing over here that's honoring God is dishonoring to Him because we are bailing out on what He's called us to over here. And you need to change, if not your job, the way you are attacking your job. You'll never overcome that hole. And no matter how much you think that just being faithful over here will somehow impress God, and you can't be faithful everywhere. You need to know something. You need to be faithful everywhere He's called you to be. And that might mean that what you're calling faithfulness over here is really a self-driven fantasy and an escape for you from the hard work of leading well over here in this other area. You need to leave your job or at least leave the way you're looking at it and adjust it and refocus it if you are not where you should be in terms of home, in terms of ministry, in terms of a healthy balance, in terms of sharing community and life with other people. Secondly, when where you are is asking you to be who you should not be. What do I mean by that? Is where you're working asking you to exaggerate the truth, to manipulate, uh, to outright lie, to misrepresent, to compromise? Then you're at the wrong place. Is it asking you to promote things into other people's lives that are not ultimately good for them? Then you're in the wrong place. As a person who should do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind considers others as more important than yourself. Here's another one. You should leave your job when where you are threatens who you want to be. In other words, where you're working puts you in compromising positions and situations or fuels your weaknesses. If you're a guy that struggles with pornography, you better not have a job that travels a lot and throws you in a room with SpectraVision. And you can compromise and rationalize that away all day long, but I'll tell you what, that's going to show up. And if you can't handle it, and I'll tell you, if you think you can handle it on your own, you're wrong. But if your job is putting you in a place where you're consistently having to spend time with people of the opposite sex, and you don't have the ability to um, wisely create environments where you could handle that, you're in the wrong job. If you're in a job that fuels your 
lust for money and financial success or uh, national prominence, and you can't handle that and balance it and have a healthy perspective. You're in the wrong job. And prudence would have you get out of it. Look what it says. The prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive goes on and they are punished for it. Or it says in 27.12, a prudent man sees evil and hides himself, but the naive proceed and pay the penalty. You can keep telling yourself all day long, I'll get over this, I'll overcome this, oh, it won't be that bad in my life. But I want to tell you what, that little cub of desire that you're toying with will grow up into a lion that will devour you. And if you're someplace where you realize that you're starting to mess with a beast that you shouldn't mess with and your job requires it, wisdom would have that man walk out of that cage before it grows up to a lion that, that chews him up. Facing the frustrations of work like a man is part of what makes us real men at work. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the things that makes us real men is that we're not guys that are always looking to cut a better deal. The grass is greener syndrome. Man, everybody else has got a better job than me. That is a better corporation than this one. Everybody else has got a better wife than me. And so off you go. Every job has its innate frustrations. And all you do is bounce around from what's the prettiest and best looking or what you hope is better on the other side of the fence consistently. You're not a man that models commitment and faithfulness. Um, uh, If you leave a job in unresolved conflict or in anger, if you burn bridges because you can't handle the frustration of living in a toilsome world that is out of whack, okay, you're not a real man. You ought to do your job before you... Do what Moses did, who didn't like the way things were going in Egypt, so he just murdered somebody and hightailed it out of there. You know, that's not facing the frustrations of work like a real man faces it. You ought to stand up for injustice. You ought to, with a controlled integrity, speak out to those injustices, even if it costs you your job. But you don't leave with unresolved conflict or in anger. You communicate like somebody who loves that person says, I will not continue to partner with you if this is going to be the way that we continue to roll out leadership in this company. If they say, fine, that's the way it's going to be, and you need to move on out, you've done your job to try and spare them, then you can leave with integrity. But a real man faces the frustrations of work like a man, not like a coward, not like somebody who lost control of his emotions. Look at this. i got some points down there for you. What do you do if you're in the wrong place and you're frustrated? Well, you get proactive. That's what a real man does. He's not passive. He takes action. He seeks wise counsel from others early. He doesn't go through it alone. He confronts the people that are causing the frustrations. He doesn't complain about it behind their backs. He shares with those people directly. He doesn't slander them behind their backs. He trusts that God will take care of him. He won't give up because he's threatened by what the outcome might be. He listens to things that he's doing to make them frustrating for other people. He learns. He doesn't just leave. He maintains his integrity. He's not worried about maintaining his position. He's willing to lose his job over his self-respect. That's what real men do. They make sure they're being unrealistic. They get the log out of their own eye. Make sure they're not being overly picky or petty. They alter their expectations or serve wholeheartedly while they're still in their situation. And they excel while they're in that situation. They don't just exist. While you're waiting for your job to change, remember who it is you still work for. Let me tell you something. You want to be a man? You imply those bullet points. And the way you face the frustrations that we all have. Don't have this illusion that, man, I just married the wrong gal. That guy's got it easier. Boy, if my wife just maintained her body the way that guy's wife maintained his body, I'd do better in marriage. No. Go through those bullet points in those same scenarios. Let me just close with this. Because this is going to set us up for what we're doing the next couple of weeks. Providing for your family, guys, includes more than just providing them with funds. 
Too many guys say, well, what do you want? You want me to quit working less? You want to move? You want to dress like that still or not? You want to drive that car or not? You know what that wife will say to you? I've never had, and I've said this before, I've never had a woman in all my years walk into an office, my office, and say, I want to tell you, Todd, this guy has loved me. He has been tender towards me. He has made me a priority in his life. He has cared for me. He has nurtured me and cherished me. He has romanced me. He has been, in every way a man should be loving towards me. But look, man, I drive a Buick, all right? And I am through, okay? I don't want anything to do with this guy. I live in a 3,000 square foot home. I can't stand him. I want a Lexus. I want 10,000 square feet. I want a pool. I want nicer clothes. I can't stand this anymore. Never heard it once. But you wouldn't believe how many Lexuses have been parked out here. How many folks who are driving from zip codes where people think if they just lived, they'd be happy. Have told you, hey, I've got all those things. I'd give them all up if this guy would just provide for me the way he swore to me on that day he'd provide for me. I don't want his funds. I want a family. Look at this verse in 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Here's my point. Providing is not just funds. It's attention. It's time. It's love. It's leadership. It's presence. It's direction. I'm going to read you one email and we're done. Take one minute. Watch this. I shared something like this a, a while back, and then I got this email right afterwards from a buddy who goes here. Three years ago, the day after my first child was born, I quit a job I passionately loved. A job that fit my gifts like a glove. The decision to quit that job was the greatest and godliest decision I ever made. It took, I took a less time-consuming job three years ago that I enjoyed but don't love, and I thank God for that frequently. You see, God doesn't have tunnel vision, and as I look at His hand in my life with the broad vision He has for me, I see my job's role in this season of my life so much broader than the 9-to-5 time frame. In this season of my life, God's blessed me with a job that now provides incredible flexibility and very little travel. Sure, I'm not climbing the career Mount Everest that I once climbed, but he has given me so much more. For example, I've noticed in the past three years, I've been able to be a part of the following as a direct result of my job benefits. I've flown to New Orleans on a weekend to hang with my dad, a weekday to hang with my dad, give him a Bible, convince him to read the Bible, and with much help from God for the first time in 45 years, interact with him about spiritual things. I've had breakfast or lunch with an atheist friend weekly for three years and ultimately watch him begin praying with his younger daughter, begin studying the Bible with me, and watch him convince an old friend that she shouldn't have an abortion. I've read the Bible and pray with my kids almost daily. I have time to take the daily phone call from my two-year-old son to hear him describe in intricate detail all of his, intricate detail, all of his bathroom experiences. <laughs> I watch my son try to turn every stick into a snake and call down frogs and locusts from the skies. Hey, how much would you pay to get that job? I take a much more active role at my church and see so many lives change that the stories begin to flow together. I can't even count them. I date my wife weekly and have the time and energy to do life with her daily. I really get to know her and see the fabric of her heart. Tyler could go on and on about all the awesome things that I've been blessed to experience over these past three years. Very few, if any of these memories, have occurred at work. But God, through His providence, put me in a job that has allowed for so many of them to happen. And His providence was leading me in my heart to discipline myself, to leave the one that I was in, to be the man that I know I needed to be. If I had followed my own selfish desires, I doubt if any of these things would have happened and there would be a bit less of treasure stored up in heaven. I don't know if He will have me in this job for another week or another decade, but I do know that if I follow His promptings, I will always be in a job that will allow me to bring maximum glory wherever He desires and provide for my family. And what's amazing about that email that I got seven months ago is that same individual who took that job three years ago is the reason that Watermark was given the opportunities it was down at Reunion Arena. Because that individual was able, with flexibility in his job, to leave his job to organize us 
and to serve the Red Cross and the Salvation Army in a way, in the city of Dallas in a way, that they're still talking about it. Because this guy had a job that gave him the flexibility to say, I'm going to take my leadership, and for the next three days, I'm going to be here. And I'm going to mobilize and facilitate people here. And because of that, we've been able to do things in terms of ministering the lives down there in the Florida Reunion Arena that folks don't normally get to do. And that's the least of it compared to what his son and what his wife says about him. Now, he's still got struggles, okay? But I'm going to tell you what, he's got work squarely in the crosshairs of where God wants it to be. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that we would too and that we would order our lives in such a way that, um, that work would not be more toilsome for us than it should be. I pray for guys in this room that work is a toil because it's a God to them. And they keep trying to throw more of themselves at it, but it won't just satisfy. Lord, that you would deliver them from the love of things, the love of position, the love of fame, the love of increase. And you would lead them to a place where they have a love of you and begin to order their life by faith, knowing that the plans that you have for them are plans for welfare and not calamity, plans to give them a future and a hope, plans that will allow them to have their children sing their praises and their wife speak about how they're blessed to be yoked to this man, not who is professionally successful but who is purposely secure in God's ways of wisdom. Would you increase that in all of us? And Father, we thank you that every one of us has a chance to go out of here and avoda today, worship today, in the way we love, in the way we serve, in the way we lead, in the way we flee from things that will entangle us. I pray that there would be 400 real men that would walk out of this room, that would be salt and light in this city, that would spur each other on to love and good deeds, and it would be a glory to you and a blessing to those that we bump into. And Father, in doing that, we know that we will experience the life that you've intended for us. And we thank you that while we get to enjoy all that, there is food, shelter, and clothing to abound in our lives. May we never live for the food, or the shelter, or the clothing, but learn to live for you, and experience the blessing that goes with it. Amen.